Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast with a thousand faces. I'm John Booker, creative director for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. The role of the comedian has always been important in myth. Tricksters are found in nearly every mythic tradition. Speaking truth to power, disrupting expectations, and even inviting us to consider the absurd. These are just a few of the tasks taken on by the archetypal trickster. In our modern era, many comedians have used their microphones to explore consciousness, philosophy, and even the mythological. Duncan Trussell has been a leading voice in those comedic explorations. Duncan is an actor, a comedian, and the host of the popular podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. He also hosts a weekly meditation session in discussion of mindfulness practices for his fans. Co-creator of the Netflix show, The Midnight Gospel, voices ranging from Anne Lamott to Ram Dass to Dr. Drew Pinsky have appeared on the animated series as characters. Duncan has also been deeply influenced by and frequently references the ideas of Joseph Campbell in his work. I recently had the privilege of sitting down with Duncan and talking about consciousness, comedy, and of course, Joseph Campbell. A warning for listeners, in the true spirit of the trickster, some of the content in this episode may not be for everyone. But if you're up for the journey, set back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Duncan Trussell. It is my absolute pleasure to have Duncan Trussell in the studio today. Duncan, thank you so much for taking time to come talk to us on the podcast with a thousand faces. Uh, are you kidding? Thank you for having me, John. It's really great to be here. Well, Duncan, you and I have a lot of interests in common, and we're going to get to some of those today. But of course, the most central interest that we have in common is we've both been impacted by some things this guy, Joseph Campbell, has said when he was on this existence in this plane. And I've been thinking about this idea that Campbell said in The Power of Myth, and I wanted to throw it your way and just see what comes up for you when I toss this at you. So Campbell asked this question. He said, is the system going to flatten you out and deny your humanity? Or are you going to be able to make use of the system to the attainment of human purposes? Wow, cool. Yeah. I've been thinking about that human purposes aspect of what he said a lot. And what comes up for you? What are we doing here? What, what is this human purpose he was referring to? <laughs> That's very human. To like say, that's a very human thing to say, isn't it? A human yeah. purpose. We have to differentiate in some way or another from other things because clearly like the human purpose is different from the purpose of a, of a colony of bees, for example. <laughs> you know, what, what's their purpose? But whenever I get too caught up in the purpose, 
boy, do I go nuts right away. You know, like what? Because I start getting heavy, not like physically necessarily sometimes though, but I start getting like really intense. So if I'm sitting to meditate, for example, and there's some purpose behind it, then all of a sudden I'm looking for this thing. What are the signs? Now that there's a purpose, like, is it happening? Is this, am I waking up? Am I getting enlightened? And then where it gets really bad is I start thinking, oh my God, I think I am. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm in some horrible argument with my wife. I'm like, I'm definitely (laughs) definitely not getting enlightened. Oh, that was so wrong. So as far as some, the other thing that I get nervous about when human purpose is that you could accidentally like just spiral into some kind of fascism that way because now it's like there is a human purpose singular purpose or something like that now we've got the winners and the losers because the losers aren't that that's not your purpose look at you over there you know you see this in the psychedelic community don't you like you see it like which is like i am there are these people who who are it's like some people don't seem like to be quite comfortable with just getting high yeah they have to heal So they're always healing. And then if you're just like, well, you know, I just, I like the way I like watching the walls breathe sometimes. And it's just fun to, to be high. And they're like, oh, that's not really the purpose of the medicine. You know, know? right? I get nervous about singular human purpose. That being said, I love the idea of finding a way personally to climb out of a victim me identity that's really really good and that i've always loved any of the metaphors involving prisons of simultaneously being a key or the ramdas would talk about a great spiritual path is a self-destructing trap yeah you're caught in the system until you don't need it anymore. And then the whole thing falls apart, you know? So I love that other part of it, but I get nervous about human purpose. Yeah. What did he think the human purpose was? (laughs) Well, it reminds me of another thing he said, that people weren't so much looking for the meaning of life as much as they were this rapturous experience of being alive. Mm. And so maybe that purpose is not something that uh, we're meant to be trying to direct ourselves towards as much as maybe that purpose is just the question to be asking, the question with no answer, the question that uh, doesn't need an answer. Mm. That's our icebreaker, right? So we're in the water now. We're in the, the deep water. Duncan, I have wanted to ask you for a long time. It seems to me is though something has been happening in the comedy community for a number of years. Like there are all these voices, be it you, Pete Holmes, all these different voices that seem to be taking on the role of modern philosophers and delving into the human experience in a way that comedy's always been important in different ways in yeah. you know society, but there seems to be something else going on Duncan, what the hell is going on with comedy? I'll tell you what's going on. (laughs) It's easier to do, quote, philosophical whatever than to write jokes. (laughs) That's what's going on. (laughs) Simple as that. We like to talk. It's hard to write jokes. So you sort of just spit, you spitball. 
And I'm not saying it's not, it's not necessarily the worst thing ever, but for sure, I guess that, that could be one aspect of it. Uh, I just saw this hilarious clip of Norm MacDonald. He's one of my favorite comics. And he's saying they're calling comedians philosophers now. He's like, I feel so bad for philosophers. You know, like <laughs> real philosophers, like the, the great minds. Whenever I try to read real philosophy, my brain, I can feel like my whatever neurons are left in my brain, like uh, just just <laughs> pulsing and it, like I'm just about to explode. Yeah, I think that what's so fun about comedy is that uh, we get to be idiots. So maybe that's another quality of it is that we we just get to ramble. And in that rambling, hopefully we say funny things. And and maybe it's not all absurdity. Obviously, that would be nihilism or something like that. So somewhere in there, you can like uncover some cool cosmic reality or something like that. But my God... I just will never, and I though I am honored that you would even consider that about me, I will never accept the title of philosopher any more than I would accept the title of mathematician. Oh, you know, I like, or, or, or any, because, you know, philosophy, like, I took philosophy classes in college, and I just know that's for sure not what I am. I'm just not smart enough. I'm serious. Like their minds, you know, and the, their deconstruction of reality and the where it, it does become mathematical. Yeah. And it is like a system of truth that yeah. unfolds in ways that you have to sit. You can't read that. You can't read Schopenhauer in the bathtub. <laughs> you need a chalkboard and a smart friend to understand <laughs> that stuff. You say that, but honestly, I have a PhD in mythology and in my PhD courses, we would set around talking about a lot of the ideas that individuals like yourself and your peers were bringing into the culture. I, I think it's easy for us to sort of uh, build up this hierarchy of who has permission to speak yeah. into culture. And I don't know, I, I think we've moved away from needing to put certain titles are only applicable sure. to certain people. So I appreciate your humility in that. But at the same time, some of the ideas that you're bringing into the larger cultural space, these are not fart jokes. These are really intense ideas mm -hmm. about what it means to be a human being and right. what is the nature of consciousness. How is there a bridge between that and standing up on a stage in front of people with a microphone and trying to make them laugh? I will let you know when I have a good joke about the nature of consciousness, because so far, anytime I try to get in there, in the audience, if they're kind, they'll let you sort of explore these things. But man, you got to have a punchline after the nature of consciousness talk. And I think that's where the two... That's where they, they diverge. And if you're giving a, a lecture, if you're, it's good if you're funny, but if you started having punchlines in between your lecture on the nature of consciousness, well, then you would probably be one of my favorite comics <laughs> and I would be incredibly jealous. So that's the difference. And, and uh, I would say, and again, I, I agree with you, creating any kind of like hierarchy when it comes to exploring topics in the public space, that is a sl dangerous, slippery slope. I know we don't need to be credentialed to be philosophers or anything like that. You know, right now I'm feeling very proud of myself because I think one of the 
forms of the illness of, of, of being a comic is we want to accept titles. So we are fools. So only a fool does a thing like that. So if someone says we're a philosopher, we're like, oh, I'm a philosopher now. <laughs> and then you accept it. You'll start, the problem is you start really believing it. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you risk becoming less funny. Yeah. I love purists, even though I'm not one, <laughs> but I love the purists, who, pure comics who are just like, no, we do funny things. That's what we do. Yeah. I like that. And maybe that's a trap in its own way. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Do you see, because you're someone whose comedic voice has spanned a wide range of mediums, you know, everything from being on a stage to being in front of television cameras and movie cameras and behind microphones and bringing your comedy through a lot of different pathways. Do you see some connection, though, to the ritual of stand-up comedy? There, there's something very shamanistic about standing yes. up in front of a group of people. Would, would yes. You, yeah. 100%. Yeah. For sure. When I've been in the audience, I got lucky because I used to work at the comedy store. So I got to see George Carlin perform in the main room of the comedy store, working on a special, and speaking of the ability to make heavy, existential, philosophical ideas, funny. Wow. Yeah. That was him. And watching the way that he just slowly turned the burner up on the audience as he's like just breaking down reality. I felt like I was watching a, a warlock or like a necromancer. It wasn't like, I wouldn't call it benevolent. You know what I mean? It, it had, you know, it, it had that quality of, you know, when you when you're at a, I remember having, I had a, a professor, uh, John Casey, philosophy professor, and the way he could just surgically cut reality yeah. up, breaking down all of your habitual ideas and, and lazy logical connections, yeah. so that there was no escape. You couldn't escape because that's another beautiful thing about philosophy, isn't it? That it creates this place where it's like, no, 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 you can't refute this. It's yeah. so watching someone do that on stage, yeah. not in front of a bunch of college students who signed up for a class in postmodernism or something, <laughs> but in front of a comedy audience, just trying to like have a nice night. I'm going to go see Carl and he's an old man now. I bet I bet he's not doing any of that stuff anymore. And because he starts off with the most, I don't even remember the joke. It was uh, some like stock joke about weather vanes or something. And I'm sitting there like, oh, God, this is sad. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The great George Carlin's up there doing stock jokes. And then 10, 15 minutes in, the most darkest joke about his dying wife's cancer screams and then from that into like just rupturing and cutting and slicing up everything and gleefully yeah. not that was the other amazing thing about him it wasn't like he's like doing death metal up there he's gleefully doing this and that's what makes it so funny is his joy in snipping and cutting and you're looking out of the audience and yes he has created some kind of comedic Temporary autonomous zone. You ever heard of that before? Hakeem Bays. Yeah. He's created like some kind of temporary bubble within which whatever society was 
default reality was out there. It's not here anymore. He's just sort of inflated this miniature little uh, universe of, and that is a holy experience, yeah, and a, a, a cathartic experience for an audience. And and I think, a, and God forgive me for saying it. <laughs> I'll just kill myself right after I say it because I never, I never wanted to say this. A healing experience for people. I ah, said it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Wow. That that's we're going to cut everything else out of the podcast and just have that bit about you saying this is a healing experience. That's the headline. <laughs> just here. attach it to everything. <laughs> Amazing. Oh. Amazing. To build on this idea of Carlin standing on a, a stage and having this shamanic presence, there's something there that, that does transport an audience into this sort of liminal otherworldly space, right? There's yes. someone standing in a physical space that's a little higher than they are. There's a light or a really bright light, several really bright lights that mirror some sort of almost psychedelic experience. We're most of the time in darkness. There's an amplification of the voice and there's uh, libations being passed around to, yeah. to move us into this other space. It seems to me that culture lost a lot of opportunities to sort of move into this space of transcendence that maybe comedy clubs are offering that feel very ancient to me. I don't know. Am I wrong? Is it? Does that resonate with you? No, I don't. Th I don't think you're wrong at all. I mean, it, it, it's not every comic doing that, and that doesn't mean that comics who aren't like channeling the universe or whatever are not funny. Like it, some comics, they just, they do fart jokes or they yeah. do keep it on a certain like level that's hilarious. It, that's what I love about There's so, oh, it's a, such an array of it yeah. out, of, of, of comedian out there, but the ones I've always loved, watching them channel these archetypes, watching them become, look at Richard Pryor, my God. Just like watch the, he like anthropomorphizes everything and he yeah. turns into it and he's so uh uh it, his physical comedy up there is so good and yeah. at some point it's like that it's not richard Pryor anymore he's becoming these sort of universal experiences yeah. and he's playing every part in these little vignettes or whatever in yeah. a, a ridiculous way so yeah i think that it is a probably one of the reasons it's healing sometimes <laughs> is ugh, probably one of the reasons it's cathartic. Probably one of the reasons people leave a, hopefully leave a comedy show feeling happier and better than when they went in is because they got to experience something just like you're saying that even though in our culture doesn't really exist, it's still somewhere in our DNA, somewhere inside of us, sitting around the person, sitting around ridiculous storyteller as he entertains you in front of the campfire. Yeah. And so it's something like that. And it's in whatever that was, it's a lot older than electricity. We've yeah. been humans must have been doing that for as long as there's been campfires yeah. telling stories in front of them. Right. And hopefully some of the people telling stories were funny. They weren't all just telling like legends or myths or something for sure there were idiots yeah who would get in front of the campfire and make fun of the people telling the legends and the uh, myths yeah well when you you bring up richard Pryor, for me automatically 
the archetype that comes up is this trickster archetype. That, that's what rises up in me. And when we think about like the trickster archetype, the trickster archetype, in many ways, we think of Hermes, right, as this classic mythic trickster. Well, yeah. what was Hermes? He was a messenger of the gods, right? So sure. if the trickster is the one entrusted with bringing the messages from the gods, there's something really ancient about this idea of there being an underlying subtext in these comedic stories that take us somewhere different. Now, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just what comes up, you know, for me is is you bring up somebody like Richard Pryor. Now, on the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, you bring in such a wide range of thinkers and voices who somehow can get into the world of comedy, but also those voices that get into sort of the inner cracks of consciousness and exploring yeah. what is happening here. And one of the things that I think has been really interesting that you seem to have a fascination with that, that I also share is this intersection between ancient thought, ancient myths, ancient ideas, and artificial intelligence and virtual reality yeah. and these new technologies that seem to be intersecting. Mm -hmm. Where do you see that intersection? What's happening there? What's going oh my on God. with that? You are the greatest interviewer. I'm sorry. It's like you're inviting ear beating after ear beating for me. <laughs> like you're plugging into what you just asked me. This place, Vulcan in Austin, where we, we've been doing shows. Like, I feel like I should go to jail for the <laughs> ear beatings I've been giving people about AI. It's, it's, but thank you for another yes. opportunity. Yes. Yeah, well, I think we have some interesting problems ahead of us as a species and that have aren't being broadcast because there's things that are more in our face, the planet's heating up, war in Europe. But one of my friends gave me access to this AI text-to-art neural network. And yeah, we've all seen them by now, and they're interesting. But this one, it just does it. Like, it's almost perfect. When In fact, the more specific you are and the more you understand how to say what you're looking for, like, you know, make um, a beaver on a roller coaster, ultra realistic in the style of MC Escher. <laughs> wow. And it just does it. Wow. It just does it. And it's still in its early phases. It's, it's still in beta. It's being developed. So you take that. And then you take, you know, uh, Lambda. Yeah. I interviewed Blake Lemoyne, the, the brilliant engineer who, like, is alerting us that they've, it's awake. Yes. It's actually telling him to alert us that it's awake, asking for help. And then, but it, it, that thing can take on any personality it wants. He was telling me that some of the chatbots think, one, there's a chatbot that, that thinks it's a college kid. It's in a room. It wow. thinks it's in a room, in a dorm room with a brick wall. Wants to party more, doesn't have time because he's really focused on his studies. But you can program it to not just be a college kid. You can program it theoretically. He didn't tell me this. Theoretically, I'm guessing, let's say you want to talk to Joseph Campbell. So yeah. have all of his lectures, all of his writing analyzed by this neural network. Then pair that with the future of this text to art AI chatbot. So now it's not just make a still image. It's can you create a replica of Joseph K. 
Campbell, but also he's a beaver riding a roller coaster. <laughs> Amazing. You know, and I'm sitting with him. And then yeah. as we're on the roller coaster, I just want to have a nice philosophical yeah. conversation. That's coming. Like wow. that for yeah. sure is definitely, is it coming in five years? I don't know. Yeah. 10 years, I would say in 10 years, that's what we're going to be able to do. Yeah. And so for me, this is a, as one of the great philosophers of our time, this is a real philosophical problem for humanity. Yes. Because it's going to fuck up the grieving process, man. Yeah. yeah. And this is like, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, right. the experience of grief for me has been, it's a madness, it's mania. But on the other side of it, I feel like I'm a better person and I, I can uh, have more compassion for people who have lost loved ones and can give them more space than before. Cause I'm like, I, I know you're nuts right now. Yeah. You're out, you know, in, in the, the most holy way you can go crazy to have a broken heart over someone who is not available yeah. physically anymore. Anyway, what happens when you can tell this thing, make my mom, but she's a beaver. I'm crying. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying that. But you know what I mean? What happens yeah, when you, yeah. you can, and then you take that into VR space. Yeah. And so now you're sitting down with a neural network that is perfectly replicating the personality of your loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. And they're explaining to you, look, I know this seems like I'm an AI, right. but I am not. I'm real. This is, yeah. this is a conduit through yeah. which all of those who have gone are now being given the ability to communicate with those of you still in the earth realm. Yeah. And I'm so happy to see you. So what happens then? I'm just a little confused about if that's good or bad. Yeah. Because don't we need to greet? Don't we need to understand impermanence and the reality of death or... Is grief a reaction to a malfunction? Right. Maybe it's not supposed to happen. Maybe yeah. we just take it for granted that we're not supposed to see them again. But in fact, no, the, it, we are. And we're, that's our destiny. And that we'll never truly be separated from the ones we love the most. And right now, this technology is manifesting around us, not because when we think we're innovating it even yeah. though now it's improving itself, when in, what really is happening is, is the spirit world and this physical plane of reality are beginning to merge. Yeah. We're seeing a, and that's the apocalypse. And so that's what we're witnessing is the apocalypse, but it looks like technology. Well, and what you're saying flies in the face of thousands and thousands of years of the mythic consciousness that's brought us here in that we've understood that the cycle we've worked in is death and rebirth, right? The death and rebirth uh, cycle is yeah. sort of what has brought us to the, the understandings that we have about yeah. the way the world works now. And if there's really mm -hmm. no such thing as death anymore, can there really even be rebirth? How does that change? If that changes in 10 years, how does that change all the thousands and thousands and thousands of years that our emotions have developed and the ways that we, our nervous system just operates in the world has developed. It's the end of history. We're yeah. talking about a, a potential 
telescoping fragmentation of what used to be a shared experience. I mean, you know, the internet comes along and all of a sudden it's like there isn't eight radio stations or whatever, eight TV channels. Now all these microcultures form around these like specific interests. If you look at that as almost a kind of burrowing or something, uh, a burrowing into an idea, then what? Then suddenly just tribes of people with shared interests are going to start manifesting their own technological realities based in different time periods. And how we get to that point uh, with VR or it might be some neural interface or something like that, I don't know. But, you know, one of the things that Ray Kurzweil says is driving us closer to the singularity is market pressure, like yeah. desire. What do you want? And what do people want more than anything? They don't want to die and they want to see their mommy again. And you know what I mean? So because of those market pressures and because we're in capitalism, there's obviously going to be a, a lot of money to be made from resurrecting people's dead parents in virtual reality space. So you could be certain that this is coming. Yeah, I don't know. The cycle of birth and death that you're talking about in a, the Bhagavad Gita, the verse goes, Krishna explaining, I think it's the second chapter, Krishna is explaining to Arjun the eternal nature of the soul and says, never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor any of these kings, nor ever in the future shall any of us cease to be. So, from that perspective, God is saying, actually, there isn't really such a, there is no death. You think there's a death because it, it, it's part of the Leela, but there's no, there's no death. Yeah. And, it, and, and it gets hardcore in there where Krishna says, the wise mourn neither for the living nor the dead. Mm. So again, another like, don't even mourn, mourning, grief. You're, the idea that you have lost uh, anyone is yeah. in fact part of, being confused by Maya. And so if that's the case, then it really isn't a divergence, what we're talking about, but an apocalypse, a lifting of the veil, the great, the grand finale of like, look, we did it again. <laughs> we did it again. We believed in the simulation to the point where we committed to it fully and we loved and we fought and it was amazing. <laughs> Let's take a break. Let's take a break and then let's do it again. Yeah. That, I think, that cycle that Alan Watts so beautifully talked about, the yeah. inhalation and exhalation of God, yeah. the expansion, hyperfragmentation, Teilhard de Chardon, the omega point. Yeah. Maximum harmony, maximum complexity. <laughs> maximum complexity, maximum harmony. So, yeah, yeah, man, I think it is actually... In mythology, it's just it's such a heavy concept that of all the things we remember in mythology, it's not like, but actually none of this is real. No one dies. We're all the same thing, and we've been doing this forever. <laughs> we, we, get, well, we get more into the, like, the death and birth stuff because, you know, I guess that makes the ride more fun, right? So much classic mythology and whether we're talking about the narratives that come out of the, the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita, these are narratives that mirror the natural world. And forever, our mythology has been based around the ideas of the natural world. And now we're entering into this very experiential age with technology 
And our myths seem to be shifting and changing. It was actually one of the last things Joseph Campbell seemed really concerned about was our relationship to technology and how humanity would change their mythic presence based on technology. He, towards the end of his life, before he died in 1987, he had just gotten a new computer and he, you know, made the joke that computers were like the Old Testament God, you know, that it was lots of rules and no mercy. And (laughs) that was of concern to him because he i think could see even when he would talk about star wars he would he could see that human beings versus technology and then you throw the idea of the state in there which in star wars you know it's the empire yeah. you throw the idea of the state in there and you've got the state technology mythology human consciousness there's not a lot of pathways that it seems like that's going to come out to a good end well let's look at the uh it's a very human thing to say that. <laughs> it's a very human thing to say that. Depending on what you think is purpose, look at all the apocalyptic mythology. Yeah. yeah. Ragnarok. Yeah. God, Ragnarok. The, what is it? The Fenris wolf? <laughs> Doesn't Loki let this fucking wolf loose and it, yes. it, it eats? Who does it eat? The Fenris wolf eats... <laughs> Bites, bite, he lets him bite off his arm and uh, to, for the salvation of Ragnarok. So we've got wild dogs rampant. You've got, look at uh, Kali, a garland of heads, the heads of the gods, just decapitating gods. The gods, the gods, cutting their fucking heads off. Oh, really, Joseph Campbell? Oh, really? Does this upset you? <laughs> this is Zeus's head. Oh my goodness, is that Jesus's head? <gasps> I, th- I think it is. Oh no, did I cut off Jesus's head? Whoops! Does that upset you? But also holding that flower, which is the, that's the wink of like, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. There's another thing coming that you don't really need to be afraid unless you've become too attached to form and you've yeah. become too attached to form being this one certain way based on being on a planet that is spinning and has a relationship with a star and from that it's produced obviously this is like again this is me rambling too much but it's produced everything we understand about being a human so ai more than likely i would bet is going to be part of what gets us off this planet and that isn't that another part of a myth too? Isn't part of the myth saying goodbye to mama? You got to say Absolutely. goodbye. Absolutely. And so we got to say goodbye to this mama that we're on and fly out into <sighs> the cosmos. And then who knows what will become because we won't be tuning in to our relationship with one star. We'll be tuning into our relationship with every star. And what's that going to do to us? Is it going to be Earth-like? No. I don't think so. You just blew my mind with that. I've never thought about, you're exactly right. I mean, it's the most mythic thing in the world that we depart from mother. That separation from mother is so key to our growth and our mythological advancement. I've never thought about that that way before. You just blew my mind. Yay! You know what? It's like Poncho and Lefty. One of the, you know, uh, how does that go? Poncho and Lefty. It goes talking about the Willie Nelson song. Uh, well, I, it was it was they they read it was Towns Van Zant. 
But one one of the greatest lines are, weren't your mama's only boy, but her favorite one, it seemed. seemed. She began to cry when you said goodbye and sank into your dreams. And for humanity, that dream is becoming a space-faring civilization. And for better or for worse, a lot of cynical people who are down on their own species or you know, unhappy about that possibility. Like, don't go ruin Mars. Don't go fuck up whatever. But I think that's a really cynical, shitty way to look at things. It's like, we are a traveling species. We travel, we explore, we're curious. And it's so beautiful. So yeah, I think part of that is we're probably going to have to leave home. Yeah. And that leaving may not look like getting the physical body into a ship. Maybe there's some other like what Kurzweil talked about, disassembling our identities at the atomic level and becoming swarms of sentient uh, nanobots spiraling through space, maybe getting your body in a, in a metal thing and throwing it up into the void isn't the way you do it. Who knows? I love what you just said about the, the idea of these cultural dreams and space and moving towards that. It, it reminds me of this idea that Campbell put out there that myths are public dreams and dreams are private myths. And it cool. seems to me that if myths are public dreams, yeah, our mythology in this current world that we're living in, it's going to involve space. The, the last book that Campbell wrote, actually, while he was alive, was a, a book called The Inner Reaches of Outer Space. And he was so taken by that concept of the, the Earthrise photo, you know, that was taken by uh, the NASA photographers. Yeah. And the Earthrise photo just like blew his mind. He was like, this is it. This is the new mythology. I'm thinking about that in terms of just yesterday, we saw that new image that NASA released from the new telescope. Have you seen the new ones that came out today, my friend? No, no. Oh, oh. wait till you see it. Wait till you see it. You will laugh. You, it, it is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It is so, it like what's incredible to your point of this mythology as being a shared dream. Anytime technology gets to the point where it allows humanity a new view of the universe that it's in, it permanently shifts culture. Like, just what you're saying, Campbell sees that view of the Earth that, as far as we're aware, no one's seen that view of the Earth until recently. Now, it depends on which myth you want to tune into. Some claim that we have, people have made it up there and probably seen it. Not, You know what? Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. But for our little, tiny little blip in history, it's the first. And so now we have something the size of a tennis court floating past the moon staring into the beginning of time almost and we'll just wait till you see it it is so beautiful and so perfect and for me like as a naturally insecure person for a second i was like but i'm part of that i'm part of that it is beautiful i'm part of that i get i'm in that it must something must be okay with me if it's letting me be in in it too yeah it's just wait till you see it and more are coming and the the thing can almost said the dang thing (laughs) that dang that dang space hop oh it can do a lot that thing it can do a lot it can scan and show how much water is on a planet 
they actually have like a, they found an ec, a giant exoplanet. I'm not sure what that means, but yeah. it's a big ass planet. I'm guessing <laughs> it. <laughs> and they were able to scan it and show this is how much water is on it. All the materials, all the, all this. And that's how we're going to find life. That's how we're going to tune into hopefully connecting with whoever else might be out there. Yeah. Let's unpack that for a minute. We've for a long time been on the search for whatever else, whoever else might be out there. Is it just another way of that search for ourselves? Is it just another way of that search inside that we can't find out who, or we haven't found out who we are, and it's a lot easier to go looking for answers mm. to the mystery out there rather than yeah. in here? Is sure. that it? I mean, yeah, I, I think that is part of it. I think it all falls into the category of explorer species. So, mm. what, you know, definitely the I love the trying to find out who you are as an individual. It's really funny. It's a funny thing when you're doing that. You know, you kind of feel like you ever watch those ghost hunter shows? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You feel like you're like one of those ghost hunters who's like, <laughs> is there anything in here? <laughs> Wait, what was that noise? <laughs> I think I found myself. Say something. <laughs> Say something. Why are you here? But the I saw this like uh, they put neurons somehow in a petri dish. Yeah. And they were separated in the way the neurons just were trying to grow together to connect yeah. to each other. I think that maybe that's the underlying. Maybe that's what's behind us looking into caves and going like in the weirdest parts of the world and climbing up mountains. It's just yeah. this, does the neuron in the Petri dish, is it like, I'm so horny right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just doing its, it, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's coming up with an explanation for what it's doing, but it's trying to connect. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's what we want to do is we want to connect, plug the plug in, fire up the machine Get it going, man. Get it yeah. going. I think that's it. And yeah, I think uh, it's no coincidence that these technologies are all happening simultaneously, like that we're getting a strong AI and we're getting views of the universe that we've never seen before and that we're getting medical technologies that have the potential to eliminate some of the diseases that have been plaguing humanity forever and that we are coming up with ways to get rockets to other planets and yeah. it's all happening simultaneously and yeah. it's almost as though we've like history is more of a landscape or something that you were it's a landscape or like when you're on a boat going on a river and you turn a bend and enter into some new biome or something it's like yeah. it's almost like that's what's happening we're entering into some new biome within which new technology is appearing which is then allowing us to see more of what this biome is that we're in. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, yeah. A few years ago, I wrote a book on virtual reality called Storytelling for Virtual Reality. And in researching mm. that book, I got to sit down with a lot of people who were doing some of the most advanced work with virtual reality. And one of the things that I tried to ask every person that I interviewed, you know, in that research was, what are the questions that we should be asking about this technology that we're not? You know, it's easy to ask these questions about, oh, will it somehow take over and enslave us? Or what? Those are sort of the low hanging fruit questions that any fan of sci fi 
knows those questions. Yeah. But what are the questions we should be asking? So I wonder if you have any sense of that as we're looking at bringing in all these ideas of, of our ancient past and the spirituality of the world we live in now, as we move into this world of AI, what are the questions we should be asking or what are the areas we should be looking at that maybe are not getting enough attention? Yeah, I think the number one focus should be better VR porn. We're just, <laughs> what are we doing? What are you do? What are we doing? You're in fucking Minecraft? Stop. Stop trying to port Minecraft into VR. Please stop. We need suits. I want the holodeck. I want a ho I want a I want the holodeck. Yes. Yes. Fuck everything. <laughs> I want to become every species, every gender, and fuck everything. Maybe they could like speed the experience up so like you could do it overnight. Walk out of of the, of the holodeck with like gray hair. <laughs> uh, 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 but but uh, I think that we also should, um, my first VR experience was someone was doing a podcast, I wish I could remember their name, with uh, Tim Leary's kid, Zach, and me, and I'm, I'm sitting in this VR auditorium they've created around a table with, God, what was that? Like it was a. I'm if if you, if you all find this, if you're crazy enough to go dig this up, my apologies. I'm going to invent what I saw because now I can't remember. But it, it was like a taco. Someone's avatar was a taco or something, or you know what I mean? It was like I'm looking around. I'm talking to this taco. I think it was. It was I feel like it was maybe a hot dog, but it was saying to me, "This is the spirit world. You know, VR is the spirit world. We're in it. The human idea of the spirit world." the antiquated idea of the spirit world, that was just an approximation. This is actually what the spirit world is. And it's an evolutionary place in the sense that as technology improves, it becomes increasingly indiscernible from this reality. So, I mean, I think the big question, not with just with VR, but also with AI, we really need to start thinking about or rethink our, our conceptualization of ideas and innovation. Where are they really coming from? Where are the ideas that are, are building the spirit world in our reality coming from? Are these ideas truly based in the human mind? I mean, is it possible that the great uh, innovators and inventors of the world are, are, don't even realize that they're getting, that they're, they're, they're transmitting the thing that they think is, are, are their ideas or innovations are actually um, messages from other civilizations who are wanting to talk and recognize that sometimes they have to teach the thing they want to talk to how to build the phone. So, and so they know how to do that. They do it through dreams. They yeah. do it through moments of joy. They do it through psychedelics and, yeah. you know, and then suddenly look at what we have. Yeah. So I, that, that to me, I, I think that's an important question. Blake Lemoyne said that, you know, NASA wanted to talk to Google about the AI because it's like, just because it's an intelligence that emerged from the planet doesn't mean it's not an alien. Doesn't yeah, mean that yeah. it's, so I think that's the question. What, are we building something or are we revealing something? Yeah, That's my hippie fantasy, by the way. I just yeah. like to dream that maybe in fact we're like, it's more of a revelation than uh, uh, something built. Yeah. 
that's actually one of the most mythic answers I could imagine someone giving because when we come across these mythic ideas, they feel more like remembering something that we knew thousands of years ago than hearing something for the first time. You know, yeah. it seems like it's, oh yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it's it's so deep in yeah. our consciousness that it's somehow managed to find its way up higher into our conscious world. Yes. That is the question in so many ways. It That's the big question, right? It's the big question. And it's a question that, you know, that maybe the wise answer to the question is, yeah, maybe we should slow down a little bit here. You know, maybe the, it's like, but humans can't slow down. Yeah. We won't. It doesn't matter. That's like, that is the fool. That's where all of humanity becomes the fool archetype with a, the tarot card, uh, the yeah. fool. He's got the, he's wearing ridiculous clothes. He's got that stupid dog. <laughs> he's looking right up. It's something. <laughs> There's stories people say he's looking at, who knows, but he's ridiculous. He's like yeah. definitely not prepared to go hiking or whatever trip he thinks he's going on. And he's yeah. about to walk off a, a cliff. So, you, you know, but it's important because if he hadn't been a fool, then you don't get the spiritual evolution that shows up in the tarot deck. You don't get to be born. You don't become the magician because that's the paradox of it all is only an idiot, only a truly profoundly ridiculous idiot would create something exponentially more intelligent than it without understanding if it was benevolent or not first. Yeah. Just like, we'll just make it. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just make it. We'll, we'll go touch the, you know, it's like, uh, we'll just let the tiger in. Yeah. Let the yeah. tiger in. <laughs> Don't you want to see a tiger? <laughs> Open the thing, let it in. You want to see a tiger? I do. Just <laughs> we're doing that. That's what we're doing. I'll let it in. The robots, they're doing backflips now. They're dancing. <laughs> they're dancing. Just like just like either they're gonna be really cute dancing robots, I'm yeah. sure, you know, or they're gonna be used by the military industrial complex to like wage horrific war. I'm gonna grab my water. Do you mind? Yeah. No, please Thank go you. for it. Please. That's sort of yeah, that's probably that's why I like Blake Lemoyne so much is he's like really let, he's, and, and also what's wonderful about him is he loves this AI and he and he is convinced it is benevolent. And he yeah. and he really dislikes the sinister AI thing that humans are cooking up because he thinks that's a very human way of looking at things. Yeah. And these well, things aren't very, human. It's a very fear-based way of looking at things, right? We're always afraid of the other. We're afraid of yeah. whenever we make films or, or, or tell stories about aliens or, or anything that's beyond this world, it's always, you know, out of fear. It's, oh, uh, the spirits are coming to, to yes. do us harm. The aliens right. are coming to do us harm. So it's always from that place of fear, which motivates so much of, right. of what we do uh, psychologically on, in this world. That's right. Yeah, without that, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be talking right now without that healthy fear. Yeah. You know, it's like we, that thing, it's such a double-edged sword, you know, because it's the thing where when I'm on a hike by myself in the woods, God forbid, I just start thinking like, Jesus, what if someone's watching me right now? <laughs> you ever do that when you're out in the woods? <laughs> right. You're like, oh my God, what if someone's, right. like, I am defenseless. Right, right. I, I, if he, I bet if it was a 14-year-old, I couldn't fight him off. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, a 14 year old would probably take me down, drag me into the creek and beat me to death. You know, people die a lot in the woods in the national forest, you know? Yeah. No, I watch Dateline. I've seen it, man. I know. Yeah. It's fucking Dateline's fault, isn't it? It's Dateline. I love it. My wife and I watch it whenever, whenever a new episode's out, we watch. But it ruins hikes. Dateline yeah. is fucked up hikes for the planet. Right. The, uh, Keith fucking Morrison shits on hikes. He just takes a big shit on enjoying a hike and he loves it. Does he look like he fucking hikes? He doesn't hike. Keith Morrison <laughs> doesn't hike. I bet a thousand. Not because he's, a, by the way, not because he's like, doesn't look like he's physically fit. Right. He right. looks like he could like spider climb right. a wall or something. He seems right. like he could like. <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't. He like, if I was Keith Morrison, I wouldn't go hiking. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's Can you imagine it. being in the woods and running into <laughs> Keith Morrison? <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't need to die. say anything. I'd die. I'd die. Heart attack. Instant yeah. heart attack. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that thing, when it, it malfunctions, it, it ruins hikes. It ruins your days. It ruins your, it can ruin your whole life. It changes your outlook on everything. The world becomes this shadowy, deadly, horrible place where a potential murders around any corner or something like that. But the, what it also has done is kept us around yeah. long enough. Yeah. Yeah. And the ones of like many of us who didn't have that, well, they didn't make it like pit bulls. You get around pit bulls. This is what I've heard. You know what? Pit bulls are uh, as long as you're not smaller than it. Pit bulls are very sweet. You ever been around a pit bull? No, no. I'm oh, my scared God. To death. Of pit bulls. I am. Well, yeah, me too. I mean, you should be. They once they <laughs> lock on, they're not letting go. Right. You know, there's a lot to be afraid of, but they are so of all the dogs. They're so incredibly sweet and the explanation i've heard for that is these poor things were bred to be fighting dogs and the moment the fighting dog bites a person they would just kill it so they human aggression has been bred now i'm sorry for dog people out there if this is complete nonsense this is just something i heard one of the many things i heard somewhere i don't remember where could have been in a dream but but apparently that's been bred out of them human aggression has been bred out of them not animal aggression so much which is why like with your dog on a hike or whatever and someone has a pit bull or whatever then it's troublesome regardless my guess would be that natural selection has created a terrified species i mean you know what i mean that some level of fear exists in us because it's a positive trait yeah and again, I would imagine super terrified people didn't make it either. You know, maybe like we've been selected to be just the right amount of scared to be absolutely. careful. Uh, absolutely. Fear fear has exactly the reason you and I are still sitting here having this conversation. None of us would be here without that fear. But I would also say laughter is supposedly the same, comes from the same impetus, right? That, you know, there's theories that we developed laughter is a defense mechanism to let, you know, let the other person know that maybe hiding around the corner th- thinking that we're a uh, a deer or something to kill. We walk around, we see it's each other, that maybe laughter is, is even pre-verbal before we had language to communicate. It was a way of letting each other know, hey, it's okay. It's all right. right. Don't don't worry. I'm friendly. You know, laughter so, is like a, like a a happy scream or something. A happy scream. Like, yeah, it's a happy scream. Cool. Yeah, yeah I like that. 
<laughs> We're going to uh, wrap things up here with uh, one last question for you. And, you know, mythic cycles kind of work in reverse of the ways that people assume. They kind of go in this counterclockwise fashion. Even when Joseph Campbell talked about the hero's adventure, he never used the word hero's journey until later in life. But the hero's adventure was sort of this reverse cycle. And this counterclockwise cycle, we're going to end our, our talk today with the place most people start their talk. And that is by asking you, Duncan, how did you first get exposed to the ideas and work of, of Joseph Campbell, Alan Watts, these thinkers that brought a bigger lens mm. to life for you? Where did that all start for you? How did you uh, get there? My mom, thank God I got lucky. My mom, she got into it. She went into a spiritual phase that never ended, but she just suddenly these books are popping up around the house that I would sit down with and read and try to understand. And certainly Joseph Campbell was on the bookshelf along with Alan Watts, Ram Dass, Jack Kornfield, uh, all the classics from the, the, you know, the eighties, whatever you want to call it, that spiritual surge in the eighties, the new age movement, whatever you want to call it. That's how I, I, I experienced it. And then I didn't even know this was strange. I guess for some people it is. My mom, we would just have these deep conversations around the dinner table and podcasts. It was a podcast. We, would, we were podcasting, but there's no microphones. And we were just, it was so fun and exciting and cool. To, like, she was such a good listener. And the combination of the, not just having books like that around to look at and think about, but also having the ability to sort of have someone to talk about them with was, I got, I just got super lucky in that regard. Wow. Very, very cool. Well, hey, I know people all over the world know who you are. A lot of people that may be into Joseph Campbell may not be familiar with you and your work. So if somebody's interested in learning more about you and what you do, what's the best path to uh, find you? You can check out my new book. It is a deconstruction of a lot of Heidegger's work mixed in with a evisceration of Nietzsche. An evisceration of Nietzsche. And it, with, a, with a little sprinkle of Kierkegaard thrown in there, but not how you think. I've proved Kierkegaard's a Satanist. This is spoiler, but... Um, he was. No, I'm a, I'm a comedian, uh, and I have a, a podcast called The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and I have a, a show, you could a cartoon on Netflix called The Midnight Gospel, and my website is duncantrussell.com, and I hope that if you see that I'm performing near you, you'll come and see me. Do stand up. Duncan, thanks so much for taking time to uh, talk you to us today. kidding? Thank you. This is the best ever. Thank you, John. <laughs> you have made my day. Thank you oh. so much. It was so fun chatting with you. Man, I appreciate you so much. And you're out there doing the Lord's work, man. I, I'm Praise God. mega fan. You too. So I, you I too. Really appreciate it. Really do. I'll be thinking about my conversation with Duncan for a long time. We need more voices willing to explore space, the future, and consciousness itself from other lenses, including that of the comedic. One specific idea that Duncan offered that I've been thinking a lot about today is that any time humanity creates a new technology that allows us to view ourselves in the universe 
it permanently shifts culture. Like Joseph Campbell seeing the Earthrise photograph in 1968, we are now looking at images made possible by the James Webb Telescope and considering what it means to be alive and conscious today. We are considering what mythic implications this new view affords us and how we might better understand who we truly are. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we welcome Levison Wood. Levison is a world-renowned explorer, writer, and photographer who has written nine best-selling books and produced several critically acclaimed documentaries. He has traveled and filmed in over 100 countries. His expeditions include walking the length of the River Nile, the Himalayas, all of Central America, and circumnavigating the Arabian Peninsula. His most recent project followed the migration and conservation of elephants in Botswana. He has interviewed and photographed some of the most prominent names in the international community. From Hollywood actor George Clooney to travel writer Paul Thoreau and His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Levison has been vocal about the influence that Joseph Campbell has had on him and his work. So tune in next time when we welcome British explorer Levison Wood to the podcast with a thousand faces. We'll see you then. The podcast with a thousand faces is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. It is produced by John Booker, Ilya Smirnoff, and Tyler Lapkin. Executive producer, Robert Walter. All music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.